This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. There are some memes that kind of catch fire, right? And there was a meme uh, that came about a while ago, and and it was, you mad? You mad, bro? And so I was always wondering, where did this come from? And there's, thankfully, there's a website called Know Your Meme. So if you don't know where this meme came from, where this, where did, what's the origin, where did it come from, you can go to knowyourmeme.com, I think it is. So the phrase, you mad, because I'm better than you, is a, is a dissing technique found in the context of hip-hop music. And when I say it this way, it seems really awkward and weird to be talking about this. It's totally uncool. With roots in freestyle battling, right? So that's where this meme comes. You mad, bro? You mad? But I think that that meme actually originated much, much earlier. Because God says to Jonah, you mad, bro? As it's rendered in our translation this morning, do you do well to be angry? God is saying, you mad, bro? What are you mad about, dude? See, there's a surprising turn of events. You see, Jonah reluctantly goes to Nineveh to uh, proclaim to the people, uh, the Assyrian people, that God's judgment is coming. And after calling out uh, to God for salvation from the belly of the fish, he makes his way to Nineveh and he finally obeys his commands and he sees the power of the word of God. Remember his harsh, yet 40 days and none of us shall be overthrown message was more effective than he could have imagined. And so while we're accustomed to uh, immense displays of violence, war, abuse, seeing an entire city full of wicked people turn from their wicked ways is utterly astonishing. It's an amazing reminder of the power of the word of God. When God's word is unleashed, even a self-centered prophet can be a vehicle for transformation. Now, that doesn't mean that those who share God's word ought not to pursue righteousness and faithfulness. But even someone like Jonah, a disobedient prophet, can be used by God for his purposes. It's just a reminder to us that God is God, and he can accomplish what he wants through anyone that he wants. And it's a demonstration of the power that God has to turn people to himself. God is irresistible. In fact, that's an idea that comes in our part of the tradition of the Christian faith, the Reformed tradition, that part of the Christian faith that comes out of the Reformation. It's influenced by John Calvin, this idea called irresistible grace. Simply put, the doctrine of irresistible grace is the biblical truth that whatever God decrees to happen will inevitably come to pass, even in the salvation of people. The Holy Spirit will work in the lives of those whom God has called, the elect, so that they will inevitably come to faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit never fails to bring salvation to people that he calls to Jesus. And at the heart of this doctrine is the answer to the question, why does one person believe the gospel and another person not? There are people that can sit in this very room and one person 
embraces and follows, trusts in Jesus through the words of the songs or the sermon or the prayers, and the person sitting right next to them does not. How is that possible? Is it because one is smarter or has better reasoning capabilities or possesses some other characteristic that allows them to realize the importance of the gospel message? Or is it because God does something unique in the lives of those he saves? The Bible tells us plainly in Titus, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of any righteous thing that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. It is God who brings us to salvation through the work of the Holy Spirit. This irresistible grace, also known as effectual calling, it's the work of God's Spirit whereby God convinces us and convicts us of sin, revealing to us that we're lost without God. Then he enlightens our mind to the knowledge of Christ. Then he renews our will, enabling us to embrace Jesus Christ, freely offered to us in the gospel. Irresistible grace means that all those God calls, he claims. It doesn't mean, though, that people are dragged, kicking and screaming into heaven. It just means that God reveals himself to be so compelling and wonderful that he is irresistible. Irresistible. Now, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, we don't know for sure that the Ninevites truly embraced the God of the Bible as Lord. Despite the fact that they turned from their sins, it seems unlikely because the words they use don't indicate that they entered into covenant with the Lord. There's no mention of them making vows or sacrifices like the sailors did earlier in the letter, in the book. We don't learn that they're casting off their idols or that they're repenting as a nation. They do. They turn from their sin, and that's a good thing. And it's a wonderful thing to celebrate and to rejoice in, right? Shouldn't we, shouldn't we be celebrating? Mission accomplished, Jonah. Look at what happened. It's time to have a party. We should be celebrating. And what is just as shocking as an entire pagan nation, a wicked country turning from sin, is that the prophet of the Lord is angry. It says he's exceedingly angry. It's even more shocking. You know, some of us have thought about Jonah, and we just really remember the fish. Maybe we know that Jonah is supposed to go uh, to Nineveh. And maybe we know something about the fact that the Ninevites turned from sin toward God. But did you know, did you remember the part of the story where Jonah was exceedingly angry because the Ninevites turned to the Lord? What's going on here? What is Jonah's problem? You mad, bro? In verse 2, we read, he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said yet in my own country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God. I knew that you were a gracious God. Merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Here we learn the argument that Jonah's been having with God all along. Basically, I knew that you would do something like this. These are evil people, and they only change because they're scared of you. It's not a true heart change, God. They're fooling you. How can you give them the same mercy 
you gave to us. This isn't fair. It's as though Jonah can't see how God could care for and love one people, Jonah's people, and at the same time extend mercy to the enemy that Jonah despised that God may love. To Jonah, it was like a betrayal. How can God be a God of justice and allow these evil people to go on? This is a contradiction between the justice and the love of God. Peter Craigie says, Jonah knew that God loved Israel and extended his mercy to his chosen people. He felt in the very marrow of his bones that this special love of God should not be extended to the Gentiles. Above all, to evil Gentiles, such as the inhabitants of Nineveh. It's just not fair, according to Jonah. Well, Tim Keller, in his book that I'm working through as part of the sermon, recognizes that this is a theological problem, right? How can God keep his promises to uphold his people and at the same time show mercy to God's people's enemies? How can he claim to be a God of justice and allow such evil and violence to go unpunished? Aren't you abounding in steadfast love? But Jonah's problem goes much deeper than an intellectual exercise, right? It's a theological problem, but it has personal implications, emotional implications for his life. Verse 3 says, Therefore now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. He's basically just saying, I can't go on like this. Now, I, I, I know what kind of God you are, but what's the problem? Is God the problem? Is God somehow the issue? Is he not acting in the way that God should act? Is somehow he ignorant of the situation? Does he not understand all the things past, present, and future? Or is the issue with Jonah? Has Jonah misunderstood what God is about? Does he have the problem? Is the problem with God or with Jonah? I'll give you two guesses. Who wants to take Jonah? Who wants to take God? The problem's never with God. We know that Jonah had a relationship with God. He's a member of God's covenant family. He's a prophet being used by God. Those are all good things. But it's also true that Jonah is angry with God. That means that he has something in his life that's more important to him than God. There's something in between he and God. Yes, he has a relationship with God, but because he's angry with God, there's something in between. There's something else in his heart. And we know this because of his explosive anger. He's willing to discard his relationship with God because he's not getting what he wants. Here Jonah is saying to God, who should be his only source of real meaning in his life, he's just saying, I have no source of meaning. And it's not just Jonah that has this problem. Whenever we say, I won't serve you, Lord, If you don't give me X, then X is my true bottom line. It's my highest love. As Keller puts it, it's your real God, the thing that you most trust and rest in. So what is it for you? What's the thing about which you're angry with God? The Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Are you mad, bro? 
Are you mad, sis? It's a great question. Another translation renders it, is it right for you to be angry? What is the thing that makes you angry? For Jonah, it's instead of punishing his enemies, God extends mercy to him. Deep down, Jonah is a racist. He's racist toward the Assyrians, and because, rightly so, of the violent history between the Assyrians and his people. But because of that, Jonah is unable to rejoice in the fact that they're turning from their idolatry. He can't even tolerate it because his heart is so hard toward them. He's put his love of his own country above their eternal good. Indeed, he must choose, if he must choose, between the security of his own country and loyalty to God, well, he's ready to push God away. Somehow, he's gone from loving his nation to deifying his nation. This is a challenge for us as well. You know, most of us, right, we're thankful to live in America. Right? We, we could live somewhere else, but we live here. Yeah, we have our frustrations with our country, I mean, but it's a place of freedom. You can get a job. You can determine your leaders. It's, it was literally a revolutionary idea. It's a great place to be despite the problems. But we need to be careful that we don't fall into one of two traps. Maybe it's the ditch on one side or the ditch on the other side. One side says America needs to be undone. Our whole history is based on lies and injustice of the past, and it means that we're totally, completely corrupted now. You see this with cancel culture and the institutions of uh, our society, the family, the government, and the church all being attacked. Yes, those things need to be critiqued. But the reality is there is no perfect human system. You can't undo the past, so you try to understand it, to correct the mistakes, reconcile, restore, and then move forward together. But the other trap, the other ditch is to idolize your country. America is the greatest country ever. It's God's favored nation, and we must defend it to the death. Now, certainly, America is worth fighting for, and we are thankful for all those who have fought to the death. We need security. We need integrity. But have we created an idol? Are we unwilling to see that not everyone who lives in our country experiences fullness? and wholeness? Are we unwilling to look in the mirror to see that there are those among us who don't live in a society that is just for them? We may experience justice, but does everyone in our community experience justice? Have we who are in power unfairly used our economic, cultural, or military power to benefit just ourselves? Being willing to ask those kinds of questions doesn't make you unpatriotic. It means that our country is not ultimate. We won't turn a blind eye to the suffering of others just so that we can say we're the best. But we also won't blow everything up because there are issues. We look to scripture for guidance on how to create a culture and a society that is just, that is fair, that is faithful, that is good for every person involved. And we're willing to look in the mirror and to say, yeah, we've got issues, so let's address them together without finger pointing and name calling. Because one of the greatest indicators of where we are on any issue is, are you mad, bro? What makes you mad? That's the great litmus test for what is in your heart. For Jonah, he was essentially mad at God for not doing what he wanted. He couldn't or wouldn't see what God could see. 
But what about you? What makes you mad? Now listen, being angry is not a sin. Being angry is not a sin. Jesus was angry. Jesus was angry in the temple when the money changers were stealing from the poor. Jesus was angry with the religious leaders who kept the faith from others. Remember, Jesus says, in your anger, do not sin. So anger in and of itself isn't sin. It's the sinful actions that we take because of our anger that can be sin. You see, it really just depends on what it is that makes me angry. I've got to ask myself, am I angry because I'm not getting what I want? Because someone is imposing on me? Because what I want to happen isn't happening? Because of a perceived injustice that I'm experiencing? Or am I angry because someone else is experiencing injustice? Righteous anger is the anger at that which is not righteous, right? Injustice, racism, abuse of the vulnerable, mistreatment of the poor, neglect of the widow. Unfortunately for you and me, maybe more me, and maybe this isn't you, our anger is our schedule. What's going on for me? And we disguise our anger with nice, pleasant words like, well, I'm just frustrated. I'm just annoyed. I'm just irritated. We kind of try to tamp it down. But in the end, it's ultimately anger because we're not getting what we want. And so here's the, God, the word of God that asks us, are you mad, bro? Why are you mad? What's going on in your heart? What is that thing? Is it your schedule? Is it your reputation? What is being threatened that you love that's making you mad? And the good news is that when we begin to look at it from that standpoint, when we understand that, and we, and we think, what is it that's going on in me? Is there some agenda that I just have to have? Is there some way of doing things that has to be done? Or is there some response that people must give to me? And when I don't get it, I become angry. That's an opportunity when I get mad to say, Lord, what am I trusting in? What am I really looking to? Am I really looking to other people's view of me for my hope and joy? There's no way that you can please everybody. Am I really trusting that my schedule or my way of doing things is the ultimate way of doing things and there's no other way of doing things? Of course not. It's an opportunity for me to say, Lord, let me find my rest and hope and joy in you and to allow these other things, and, and sometimes they're important things, to let go and to forgive and to move on. Do I look to my country, or to my identity, or to my comfort, or my schedule, or my money? If those things are causing me to be angry, I need to ask the Lord, say, Lord, heal me. Reveal to me what that thing is that's an idol in my life that I need to turn from and repent so that I can be restored to you and I can see it for what it truly is. It's merely a thing. It may be a good thing, but it's not an ultimate thing. You see, then we can be like Jonah. Who knew? Here's the thing. Jonah knew this. He said, it says, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Here's the thing. Jonah knew that this is the God that he worshipped. And the thing is, brothers and sisters, you do too. That's why you're sitting here. Because you want to hear and learn more about this God. So you know that. But like everybody else in the room, there's something that can get in between you and God. 
and it causes you to be angry. So what is it? It's a quiet space to reflect and to say, Lord, what is it that's causing me to become irritated, annoyed, frustrated, or angry? And is it really something ultimate? And here's an opportunity right now to say, Lord, search my heart. Just bring up to my mind the, the, the last thing that I got angry about. And what's the root of that issue? Because you see, Jesus wants you to be able to be healed from that and to forgive or to move on or to let go or whatever it is. This is not a, a condemnation for people who get angry because then we'd all be condemned. It's a gift to be convicted of anger, to be pointed to the cross, and to be released from the anger and to let go, to let go of the hurt that you feel, to be able to forgive the betrayal, to be able to not look to the opinions of others for your identity and to say, Lord, let me live in freedom and joy in you so that today I can live with joy. I can live with happiness. I can be a witness to who you are. You see, it's only when we really meditate on Jesus that we're able to diffuse the anger that we have. I mean, think about, think about Jesus. Man, did, did Jesus have a right to be angry? I mean, obviously, ultimately, he, he was convicted of crimes that he didn't commit. He went to the cross for a, a total, total injustice. But just think about how he was when he was walking around with his friends. They're bickering and arguing all the time about who's got power. And Jesus, he, he, he's never frustrated with them. He's never like, these people are so annoying. God, why'd you give these people to me? He loves them. He's patient with them. All those times when his disciples weren't doing what he asked of them. And he knew it was for their good. And he didn't, they didn't do it all the time. Those dumb disciples. If only they knew as much as we know about following Jesus. Because we've always done what Jesus has asked us to do too. No, we're just like them. We fail and we struggle and we don't believe and we don't trust. And yet, what? Is Jesus mad at us? No. He's always exceedingly pleased with us. He rejoices in us because we've been made in God's image. And he loves us so much he went to the cross for us. And so when that defines us, when that shapes us, the things that we get angry about become less meaningful and eventually become meaningless. And it's only as we meditate on Jesus. Um, I read uh, this quote from um, Frederick Buechner, he says this, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come. How many of you have argued with the person that you're mad at, but they weren't actually there? You're driving along in the car, and you can picture them, and you're saying, this is what I would be saying to that person if they were really here. But they're not there. I, speaking of memes, I saw this funny meme. There's like this person holding a little dog, and there's a bigger dog sitting down, and the little dog is just going, whoa, 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 whoa. And the, and the owner puts the little dog down, and then they just kind of sniff at each other. Right? That's what happens with us. Like, when we're off by ourselves arguing with this person, let me tell you this, and this, and this, and this, and then we get to the person, we're like, I'm not going to say anything to him. I don't want to make him mad. But those bitter confrontations that we're having, 
He says, then to savor to the last toothsome morsel, both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it's a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. That's what our anger can do. We just hold on to the bitterness because of the hurt. It doesn't mean that we don't find justice. We've got to learn how to deal with our anger. And the way that we do it is to look at Jesus. Is to look at Jesus. The one who ought to be angry with us for the ways that we failed to follow him. And yet he doesn't look at us that way. He sees us as his daughters and sons. And when he says, you mad bro, he says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So brother, sister, whatever it is that's causing you to be angry, take it to Jesus. Let him work on it. Let him take it for you because he's already taken it to the cross. And you know what will happen? If there's in some way, you'll be released from it. Not fully, but over time you will. And then you'll have a witness. You'll have a testimony. And God will use you. And you can say to someone, let me tell you about the anger that I used to have and how Jesus helped me let it go and what a ministry that will be. And when people repent and turn to Jesus because of your ministry and your words, we will rejoice together. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.